Hello and welcome to Micromaterialism, the show where we take a material science topic and break it down into a bite-sized chunk. My name is Andrew Falkowski and I'm joined as always by my co-host Taylor Sparks. But this time, we're not in the shed. <laughs> we're in Anaheim, California. Taylor, why are we here? What a place to be. <laughs> sort of hazy after, or hazy morning air. We've got the freeway sound in the distance, palm trees lazily hanging. We are here for the TMS 2022 annual meeting a big conference, and we thought, what better place than to record a special episode on conferences in material science? Yeah, as an undergrad and even as a master's student, conferences were always kind of a mystery to me. You know, professors would disappear for a week or something, <laughs> come back with a sunburn, um, but it wasn't necessarily clear what you do there or how you actually go to a conference. Yeah, which ones are there? So this got us to thinking as I was sort of helping my group get ready for this meeting, we had a bunch of questions sort of come up. So what conferences are there in material science? Are some better than others? Are they all these mega conferences or are there small niche ones? How should you prepare? What should you expect? Uh, how do you get the most out of your stay there? And, you know, just basics of how do you actually answer that tough question that you might get in the middle of your lecture hall that you weren't expecting? So we figured we'd sort of dive into some of these things in today's uh, a bit unusual micro episode. We're at the TMS meeting. It's one of the bigger conferences, but it's not the only one. There are tons of conferences out there. Uh, oh, what yeah. are some of the other ones? Yeah, for sure. Well, I'd say that in material science, they kind of get split into two categories. The really big conferences, which can have thousands, you know, 5,000, 10,000 people at them all the way down to the really small conferences. So let's just talk about the big ones for a minute. Uh, the ones that come to mind are the MRS, the Materials Research Society, TMS, obviously, the Minerals, uh, Metals and Materials Society. And then you've got the ACS, the American Chemical Society, the APS, the American Physical Society. Uh, you've got, then after that, sort of hybrid conferences or things where the multiple societies have come together. I guess there's the ACERS conferences, the International Conference and Expo on Ceramics and Composites, ICACC. Um, and then there's some IEEE meetings. So there's a bunch of these. All these acronyms, like, you, I think people would start to feel lost, and those are just the big conferences. Then you start to look into the smaller ones. We'll sort of describe what these things are. Uh, let's start with the MRS. The Materials Research Society is one of the flagship research societies for materials research, for sure. It and TMS, I think, in my mind, are the two biggest ones. And they both have the most prestigious meetings, right? So the fall MRS meeting is always in Boston. It's terrific. Like, it's a great conference. It always is where the best results, I think, typically get showed. Because it's on the East Coast, it's closer to many schools. And so, anyways, it's a big conference, heavily attended. You're going to see some good results there. But, <laughs> there is a but, there's like 30 symposium running concurrently. And so it's overwhelming. You know, the, the number of people there... It's so hard to find like that one talk because you're just sort of bouncing from symposia to symposia. They do have a spring meeting. It's typically been pretty big as well, although a little bit smaller and less prestigious. It was in San Francisco for ages, but now it's moving between San Francisco, Seattle, sometimes in Arizona and Honolulu. It seems like they're rotating. Anyways, that's the Materials Research Society. If you want to go somewhere just to find, you know that <laughs> all aspects of materials will be represented and you just want to see it all, then that's not a bad pick. TMS is pretty similar, right? It does have more of a metals focus, but it's also really big. It also has many, you know, several dozen symposia running concurrently. What's been your experience here coming to some mega conference like that so far, Andrew? Yeah, I found that it was, in some senses, overwhelming. There's so many talks <laughs> that you want to go to, but yeah. there often isn't time, right? 
yesterday morning, there were three talks that I wanted to go to that were all happening at the exact same time. I think it's also hard to have maybe some of those one-on-one conversations that you might want oh, to totally. with some of the researchers, mainly because, in my case, uh, I don't know anyone in the <laughs> field. Right? I have people's papers that I've read, but trying to track them down uh, yeah. can be kind of difficult. But you're definitely right that some of the conferences cater to different classes of materials, whereas oh, yeah. there certainly is some polymers research at this conference, yeah, but not it's much. overshadowed by additive manufacturing, uh, yeah, you know, steel research. If you're interested in polymers, there are some really great specialty conferences like the American Chemical Society, the ACS, right? That's certainly most of my colleagues that are in that space, but are also material scientists. That's sort of their home uh, conference for them. If you're more into the physics side, so condensed matter physics, uh, then you're probably going to be going to the American Physical Society along with all the other physicists. And that's a huge meeting. Their annual meeting is another really prestigious one. It's a big one. If you're into machine learning, like we are, there's specialty machine learning conferences, which are not materials related. Um, well, not even specialty ones. There's big ones like NeurIPS, right? The Neural Information Processing, whatever it stands for. Uh, so anyways, there's a bunch of these really big ones. And I think that they're, they cover all the facets of materials if you're interested in uh, from a broad scale. But if you're like us doing materials informatics, you'll find symposia related to materials informatics, but you won't find a whole conference at that scale dedicated to it, they're going to be smaller meetings. And that's not a bad thing. So for example, I'm chairing a conference, AIM 2022, stands for Artificial Intelligence in Materials and Manufacturing. It's going to be smaller. It'll have a couple hundred attendees as opposed to several thousand. And the great thing about it is that we have three sessions running concurrently. So it's really easy because there's only three to sort of look through the list and say, All right, I, have to, I have to choose between A, B, and C speakers for each time slot. Whereas for TMS, you know, I was looking through, you know, dozens of pages, like not, not exaggerating, of PDFs to sort of scan and try and figure out what, and you just don't. So you end up just picking like a symposium or two and sort of haunting those as opposed to really knowing everything that's happening. And then, you know, you might get disappointed because they'll put great speakers in symposia that you wouldn't have expected, which is a bit of a bummer. So there are many other smaller conferences, right? The Gordon Research Conference is one that I think I never learned about until I was you know, done with grad school. And that was a shame because the Gordon Research Conferences are phenomenal. First off, it's sort of like summer camp for scientists. Everyone gets together and it's like a total party vibe. People wear shorts and t-shirts. It is not like shoot, suit and tie at all. You typically stay in the in like a really nice hotel or in like the uh, lodgings of some liberal arts college up in you know the Northeast. And it's awesome. One thing I really like about them is that they restrict attendance to, you know, it's often invite only uh, for speakers. And then the attendance is typically, you know, one PI and maybe one grad student. And so the ratio of sort of like expertise to people learning is in a cool place compared to many other conferences. Um, And they're small, right? They also typically have one symposia, right? And so everyone's there in the same room debating and learning together. And you're not wasting time wandering through the halls or, you know, chit-chatting in the halls. There's more of it, like, in the room together. Another thing I love about the Gordon Research Conference is that they end in the, uh, in the, around lunch, and then there's typically an activity that everyone goes to. They'll go and hike a mountain or, like, go and do some cool, you know, outdoors activity because these are in the summer. And then they'll often pick up for another section in the evening prior to, you know, food and, and drinks that go well, well into the evening. Like, legit, some of these guys, like... <laughs> Oh, you think they're 18 again. They are staying up till way late uh, partying. So if you haven't heard of the Gordon Research Conference, 
I, again, I've only attended the solid state materials chemistry one, which is a pretty good fit for materials, but it was a great experience. And that isn't to say that that sort of stuff doesn't happen at the bigger conferences. Oh, but yeah. Oftentimes, it still is invite only. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, you're right. Um, there's other small conferences that, that you should be aware of. The Telluride Science Research Center, TSRC, um, obviously is held in Telluride, Colorado. Very cool place. It's another really cool invite only, typically very small meeting. Instead of several hundred, these might be several dozen, right? And so really an intimate setting to get to know a bunch of other scientists and I like that these are sort of everyone's there and you're far enough away from things. In some cases, you know, they're physically disconnected, like the ones on Hawaii or whatever. But in other cases, they're a little more remote. But it gives you a reason to sit down and actually not get distracted just by work stuff, but spend some real time getting into something. It's been pretty great. Yeah, I remember talking with a coworker about maybe two decades ago, a number of these small conferences in ceramics that were debating and arguing about grain boundary <laughs> complexions and just trying to figure it out. Oh, yeah. And it's something that, a, you know, those sorts of conversations might not be suitable for a larger conference where there's so many different talks. Right. And people are on very complex schedules, but some of those smaller ones have those advantages. Oh, totally. So, I mean, we've, I'm sure, you know, if you're, if we didn't mention your favorite conference, it's not because we didn't like it. It's just that there's so many, but let's shift gears a little bit. Now that we've sort of said a, a you know, a rough landscape of what conference landscapes out there, let's pivot to, uh, not just big versus little, but how to prepare for it. Andrew, what did we do to prepare for this conference? Right. So everyone here is presenting. And mm -hmm. so, right. Typically There's obviously the talk to get six ready. Six months <laughs> to nine months in advance, you'll submit an abstract. Yeah, I don't think people realize that. It's way earlier than you think for most of these meetings. Like and by the time that you're hearing of the conference, the abstract window's come and gone for the most part. Yeah, and you know, if you know anything about research, if you do <laughs> research, you know that it's highly nonlinear. What you submit <laughs> as an abstract is unlikely to be what you actually end up doing. Which is okay. I, it has to be pretty close, but an abstract is just that. Like it's it's uh, you know it's sort of like a, a it, you're gonna present something similar to this, but if it's not exactly that, it's not the end of the world either. It's so it is possible for you to change it. I think some people feel like, well, shoot, I can't submit this to this conference because my research isn't done yet. It's like, well, great, submit the abstract on what you think the results. Well, you don't have to talk about the results in the abstract. Say we're doing research on this topic. Here's our problem that we're solving. Here's the hypothesis. Here's some of the stuff that we anticipate talking about. And, you know, worst case scenario, you can always pull your abstract, and it's not even that uncommon, right? I, don't, I think it can annoy conference organizers. It would annoy me, right, and the ones that I've organized. But it's not the end of the world if you have to pull your abstract. Yeah, I think the point is mainly to just try to cover your bases and project into what your results are going to be. Right, right. Um, so, obviously, getting ready means getting your abstract in on time. There's a priority date for registration. You should be aware of that, that you can save your advisor or yourself some money uh, if you do it before that date. So do that. I, I find when it comes to these conferences, I just put reminders in my calendar, right? I look up years in advance. I do some planning every once in a while, and I say, okay, I'm going to want to attend this meeting. I'm going to want to attend this one. You know, the NASC, the North American Salt State Chemistry Conference is a great one. It alternates with the GRC. So I've just got those two on my summer calendar alternating every year, and I just bookmark when the abstracts are going to be due and just make sure I get those done. So, but you also have to get your talk ready. Getting your talk ready is a big deal. We'll probably do a whole nother episode on speaking and poster presentation and stuff like that. But for now, I can just say that 
practice makes perfect. Like it is absolutely imperative that you practice giving that talk in front of people where they can give you harsh feedback if you need it. The rule of thumb I give all new people is 10 times. And that sounds like a lot, like I'm not going to practice this 10 times, but if you do, it will be a much better talk. And you can tell good talks are bad ones. When you go to a conference, people either do a great job or they're awful. And I think the key there is getting good feedback and practicing. How was your experience with that, Andrew? Yeah, having a research group is really helpful because odds are they are either in your field or they're in an adjacent field right. and they can give you really good feedback in that regard. They're probably likely to ask you similar questions to the questions you might get at TMS. They, they know the field or at least they understand material science enough to really give you great critiques on it. And it's a, it's a good audience to practice to as well because... You know, these are presentations where you know your audience is technical, so you don't necessarily want to go and find a you know, non-technical or yeah. unrelated person to present to because what they think you should do is going to be very different than what is expected and maybe what's appropriate for yeah. your audience. And the, the vocab and stuff that you'll want to use with them is different, obviously. So for sure, like know the audience, like know what happens at that meeting, like how much jargon can you use? If you're me, I err on the side of less jargon, err on the side of explaining things, really simply i think sometimes a big mistake i see grad students do is they show up to these meetings and then they try and use like the most like big words and try and like really make it sound like they know this by using like the most complex jargon possible and they try and explain it in a way that yeah it makes them sound smart but ultimately what i think makes you a great speaker is explaining things simply if you can take a complicated subject and break it down into a simple way that i find does much better and no one ever complains about having something explained simply, but people all the time complain that I don't know what I just sat through, right? I just had equations flying past me and had no idea what was going on the whole time. Yeah, you see just huge figures or even several figures that were compiled into their own figure just oh gosh, planted yeah. on the slide. And I'm spending all this time trying to interpret these cryptic symbols in the form yeah. of really tiny figures and uh, not paying attention to the talk. Yeah, a, a super common mistake I see people do is they'll have already written a paper, typically a manuscript to go along with this. So they'll just lift the figure straight from that onto there. And that's not necessarily the right way to go because sometimes the manuscript you combined because of space limitations or figure number limitations, you might have like six or seven different messages rolled into one figure. Maybe you did X-ray and SEM and all these other things, but it might make more sense to present those one at a time. And so that might mean remaking a figure and that, you know, I've certainly been guilty of it where I didn't want to make the time to redo a figure, but it, there's no, it's undeniable that it can be a better way to do it, to make it custom for the presentation. You should also tailor your presentation with the expectation that you're going to be asked questions. Yeah. Right? You're given a 20-minute time slot, but really you maybe want to shoot for 15 to 17 minutes um, for your talk, if that's your time slot, so that there's time for people to ask questions. It's, you yeah. don't want to go over your time slot. Totally you don't agree. Don't too much under. It's the worst when somebody has an interesting talk, but they can't stop talking, and then they go over their time. Well, first off, never go over your time. That's rude. That's rude to the people that follow you. It's rude to the session chair. And if you're a session chair, you have one job, and that's to keep things on time. Like, no, just stand up and stop them. It drives me crazy when some big wig thinks that they can talk over the next person's time slot because they're well-known. That, that makes me nuts. So keep it on time, but also save some time for questions. Some of the best interactions that you'll get will be those questions. You'll get great feedback, but only if you've explained it simply enough that people can understand. You have a good topic that they care about, and then you save time for that discussion. Um, so what do you do, Andrew? If you, did you get a question that was hard to answer? Not at my talk, but that is a good point. Sometimes <laughs> 
you're speaking with people who are experts in your field. Yeah. You shouldn't expect softball questions and you should invite challenging questions because Absolutely. odds are they might have seen something that you didn't or they might know yeah. of something that you don't. And so those questions are great opportunities to explore your research further and get somebody else's perspective. But what happens when you do get a, a tough question? How yeah. should you answer it? Well, well, that's it. I talk to undergrads and that's their biggest fear about coming to conference. Like, what do I do if I, you know, they ask something? I don't know. Well, if you're an undergrad, first off, what you should do at the beginning of your talk is say, I'm an undergraduate at the University of Utah, at the whatever, right? Um, because people will brace a little bit differently. They're not going to be nearly as harsh if you say something that you should have known because you're an undergrad and you, you don't know yet and you're still learning, right? So I would just say that. But even if, you know, if you're a grad student and you get a hard question, what do you do? Here's my tip. First off, repeat the question back to make sure you understood it correctly because it's possible that you thought it was a hard question, but you just misunderstood. That also buys you some time to get the mental gears sort of spinning about what sort of response you give. Um, if you repeat it back and you're probing your brain for what to say and they're still like not obvious what the right answer is, it's totally okay to say, I don't know. I, I had a question like that yesterday. Somebody asked me something about, I'm forgetting what it was now after my talk, and I've done this for a long time. And I was like, I'm not going to be able to answer that question because I don't know what that is, what you just asked about. But let me, your second question I can answer. Um, having a little bit of, you know, you can smile and say like, I don't know. Uh, and then another great thing to always follow up with is like, hey, let's chat in the hall after this. Uh, tell me more about that. I'd love to learn more about it. Yeah, it's a great invitation for discussion one, but yeah. possibly networking as well. Oh, totally. Or a collaboration. Like maybe somebody here's your talk and they're like, oh shoot, we could do a measurement related to that on these same samples. Maybe they want to, you know, do that. And so I think being friendly and inviting, and even if you don't know the right answer per se, you know, whatever. And then the other thing I think that you can do is you can always say, I don't know, but here's what I think. That's always a great answer. You can say, you know, if I understand you correctly, and maybe I don't, but here's what I think you're saying. And here's, here's how I would go about answering that question. Here's the type of measurements that we could potentially do, or here's the other experiments we could do that would maybe answer that or provide that understanding. I don't think anybody's going to complain about that either. What you should never do is BS it. Because even if you're a good BSer, right? And I've BSed a little bit. <laughs> but if you're a good BSer, you still can get caught. And there's nothing worse than that. If you, you know, you're sort of rolling with it, thinking that you're getting away with it. If somebody catches you, it it's really bad. It's, it's, you know, you, you gain so little and you can lose so much. So don't just say, I don't know, but here's what I think. And that's a way better answer. Yeah. Nobody's going to see your talk and be like, well, I'm not going to talk to that guy because he didn't understand <laughs> my question, but they're probably going to be less interested in having a conversation with you. If you're just trying to BS your way through questions and yeah. are acting like, you know, something yeah. that instead, you don't. yeah, be teachable, have an attitude that you want to learn too. Nothing wrong with that. Well, it, getting ready for the conferences, getting your talk ready. There's, you know, planning some practice runs and practice questions. But there's other things you can do to get ready for a conference. Something that was really helpful for me, especially when I was a graduate student, is emailing people in advance and asking to meet. Because, honestly, the symposiums themselves can be total hit and miss. They can be some of the worst ways to learn science. You know, and you cram 30 people in a dark room, prop them up on copy to try and keep their eyes open sort of thing. It's just not ideal. People are jet-lagged. They start these sessions super early. Some of the speakers are so boring. In some ways, it's sort of the worst possible way to communicate science. Like if you tried to design a worse system, I'm like, what do I do? Um, circus music, I guess. <laughs> but I mean, it's you can make it better. And honestly, some of the best interactions I've had at conferences have been outside of symposiums. They've been over, you know, let's go grab a drink or let's go grab dinner together. Um, I'm a Mormon, and so you know, I don't drink. 
but I'll still go to the bars with people. In fact, I remember ordering a milkshake once and people were like, what? <laughs> but because that's where the networking happens, right? Um, I highly recommend that you take those evenings out with other people that you go offer, like don't ever eat lunch alone, like email ahead of time or find somebody. Even if you don't know anybody, just talk up, find a group of people and walk up and be like, hey, can I grab lunch with you guys? You know where, where you're going? Yeah, it actually happened last night. Uh, I was out with some coworkers and we heard some people talking about Damascus steel <laughs> on the table over. So of course we had to join. You know that, yeah. Just, you got to be a little bit bold. Like if you're an introvert and trust me, like there's a big part of me that's an introvert. So I totally get it. Um, you should still do it. Like reach out, go out of your comfort zone. You're at the conference. You spent the money. You got your talk ready. Get the most out of that conference by networking. And that means talking to people, even if it's informal, like over lunch and, and drinks or whatever. I think it's really worth it. Um, there's also meetings and there's in all of these conferences and all these professional societies, there's service opportunities. Um, if you're a grad student, there's young professional organizations and almost all of these things where they have meetings just for young up and comers, where it's much more about mentoring. They'll pair you with really good people in the field that would be good to know. Totally worth, you know, connecting with these sort of groups and offering to do service. Like maybe that's going to be organizing the next symposium next year at the conference. So getting involved in those, they almost always have meetings during these conferences, oftentimes the Sunday before. Many conferences go Monday through Thursday, and the Sunday or maybe early Monday they'll have some of these meetings. Um, again, if you're too shy, then you won't go to these things. So find some courage. I, I was at my very first TMS meeting I'd ever been to, and people told me, oh, you should attend some of these administrative and other you know division meetings. And I didn't even know what that was. And I was sort of milling around the room where one of them was taking place, and I was curious about it. And some random guy, and to this day, I don't know who he is, but he's just like, oh, you can just go into that meeting. I'm like, I don't know. It says invite only. I think it's for like the organizational committee. And he's like, oh, no, we'll just walk in together. And we did. And sure enough, it was not open to the public. But the people there were so nice that they were like, oh, don't worry about it. Come on in. And they were like some of the top leaders in our field. Anyways, from that one experience of this random stranger who I have never since met, I don't even know who he was, I have made so many important connections in my own field, like, holy cow, like letter writers for me for tenure, for awards. Like, these people are a big deal. And I met them because somebody had the bravery to just walk into a room and say, could we just sit in on this meeting? We're interested. And it's led to a lot of great interactions. Yeah, I think it puts, right, there's always that kind of fear of reaching out to a professor or somebody else in your field. But the conference gives you a nice excuse. Hey, I yeah. saw your talk. I thought it was really interesting. Have you considered this? Or I want to learn more. How could I get in touch with you? Or odds are, if you're in the same symposium, you're probably interested in the same yeah. things. And you can certainly just open up and talk to them. I think it's really important, especially for grad students, to send some emails ahead of time. Find out, like, if there's that other killer research group uh, at some other school, like, look at who their graduate students are. You can find them on a website, probably. And send them an email and be like, hey, by chance, I, you know, I've, I've read your papers. Are you going to this meeting? I'm going to be at the Fall MRS. I'm going to be at the Gordon, right? Are you going to be there? I'd love to catch up about this. Um, they may not. But if they are, it's a great way to network. And I think making it less about competition between groups and more about just like, hey, teach me something and I'll teach you something, like, is a way better way to go. Um, you can do the same thing with professors. You can always say, like, hey, are you going to be at the TMS or the whatever meeting? I'd love to meet up and hear you talk. What symposia are you in? And they'll be glad to tell you about it. Um, and then advertising your own work is important too. Like, don't be afraid to tell people like, hey, I'm giving a talk tomorrow afternoon. Like, you're, I'd love to have you come by. You could learn about what we're doing. Invitations like that are really important as well. You, I do those on Twitter. Typically, I'll say which sessions I'm presenting in um, or whatever you know, other platform you might use. 
And at many of the big conferences, there's more than just talks. There are often poster sessions. Oh, yeah. Regardless of how you feel about the posters, it does offer a one-on-one way to talk with the researcher about their work, right? They can't really go anywhere. They have to stand at that poster. So if maybe you see an interesting poster or you want to connect with people in your field, uh, it's a great way to have just one-on-one conversation. Oh, totally. I went to the one here at TMS, and most of the time, people just ignored the poster, and we just talked. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I I always say this, but a poster is just a prop. No one actually reads posters. It's just there as sort of like you can point to a figure if you need it to explain something. What you should really be trying to get out of that is a conversation, right? Connect with somebody and actually chit-chat a little bit. They also usually have food and drinks. They have, like, vendor expos with tables from different vendors. I mean, some people love these things. They'll certainly give you a lot of swag. If you want a lot of pens and USB drives and... Oh my gosh, they give you all sorts of silly things, then by all means, peruse them. It's definitely geared towards industry. Oh, totally. Like, like they're trying to sell products for sure. Yeah, I go there. I'm like, I, I can't afford an SEM. <laughs> but it's not bad to walk through and make contacts, uh, honestly. And they usually have good food and candies and stuff. So you're out nothing to walk past it. You're only going to get you know a, a good experience from it. Yeah, it is cool to see the state of the art, right? For a sure. while, I was only really aware of the uh, tabletop SEM in our characterization <laughs> lab. And so then I go to this conference and see that, oh, you can do a heated SEM. Oh, yeah. You can watch things melt. Oh, yeah. That's pretty crazy. Um, and I wouldn't have been aware of it otherwise. So it's a good way to get out there and see what other tools you could be using to yeah. assess your samples. Or maybe you can send it to someone who has one and get it analyzed there. Yeah. Well... That was a, a little bit, we, we're going to keep this episode short because it's a micro, but we hope this was somewhat helpful. We have lots more to say about conferences, and we have some cool things coming down the line, actually. We have some cool partnerships emerging. So uh, if you'd like to see a live episode recorded, we think that we're going to be able to make that happen in the next year or so. So uh, pretty excited about that and some other really cool things coming down the line. Uh, a quick note, since we're talking about conferences, I did want to mention one really cool one which has come up Uh which is through Elsevier. Elsevier, as you know, is one of the sponsors of the show, and we think that's really awesome what they do. Well, there's a specialty conference that they have that they're putting together, and I'd like to tell you a little bit about it. It's in uh, in Genoa, Italy, this October. So if you're in Europe, <laughs> Genoa is in it's the Italian Riviera, right? This is a beautiful place to be. Let me just tell you a little bit about this conference, and if I can convince you to come out there, I'm going to be there, and it's going to be pretty rad. So the conference is entitled the 7th International Conference on Multifunctional Hybrid and Nanomaterials, taking place 19th to the 22nd of October of 2022 in Genoa, Italy. Here's just a little bit about it. It says, it's a large program, four days, bringing together an exceptional lineup of high-level plenary speakers together with more than 25 featured speakers to give focused talks with parallel symposia sessions. Abstracts are invited for both short talks and posters covering the latest research on all aspects of hybrid materials uh, and submissions are open until the 29th of April. So you'll this episode's going to air well, well before that. So you have time to put an abstract together if that sounds like something of interest to you. It says this is a major conference. It regularly attracts around 1,000-plus interdisciplinary delegates, and we look forward to welcoming back colleagues from around the world when we meet in person. So uh, it's not a conference I've been to before, but since I'm going to be in Europe over the next year, uh, anyways, uh, I think I'm going to go check it out and probably record maybe something, uh, a podcast from there if we can do it. Well, this is a this is a fun episode. It's nice to get to actually talk about the experience after going to it, and I think it'd be helpful to other students or even people in the field who might be interested in going to a conference but don't really know where to start. Oh, totally it can be overwhelming if you're not really familiar with, um, you know, how to actually go to them, what to expect. But I think 
you have to go to Disneyland. I have a heat transfer <laughs> midterm to study for. Uh, so we'll just wrap it up here. As always, if you're a fan of the show, you can shoot us an email at materialism.podcast at gmail.com. If you don't use email, you can hit us up on Instagram at materialism.podcast. Um, but one thing that really helps us is if you leave a review on iTunes or Spotify, it helps us grow our audience. It helps expose new people to the show. And it's a great way to give us feedback too. You know, Tell us what you like. Tell us what you don't. Uh, how we can improve. Um, finally, we'd like to give a shout out to Alphabot and Colabite who make the music for the show. They make a lot of cool synthwave music. You can find them on YouTube, Spotify, wherever you listen to your music. And yeah, catch you next time. See you next time.